Hello folks. Up to now we've been examining Merleau-Ponty on embodiment. His general strategy involves overcoming rationalist and empirical assumptions to understand the human being and the world. This approach involves examining a variety of pathological conditions, the phantom limb, agnosia, aphasia, anosognosia, which render explicit what was missing in rationalist and empirical approaches. These pathological conditions were only intelligible because of human embodiment. Now, I want to turn this week to the latter stages of the phenomenology of perception. There, Merleau-Ponty concludes phenomenology of perception with essays on the cogito, intersubjectivity, temporality, and freedom. I want to concentrate on the latter points, time and freedom, because these notions draw together the many themes which Merleau-Ponty tackled across phenomenology of perception. Also, Given Merleau-Ponty deemed it necessary to conclude phenomenology of perception with a reflection on the nature of freedom, this tells us of the importance he placed on the idea. In this lecture, then, I want to do three specific things. Firstly, I want to explain what Merleau-Ponty has to say about the experience of time. This is important because Merleau-Ponty's philosophical defence of freedom is inseparable from the question of temporality. This runs counter to conventional accounts of freedom in philosophy namely free will and determinism. In the second section, I explain how Merleau-Ponty constructs an alternative account of freedom as a form of self-awareness. In the last section, I outline Merleau-Ponty's own theory of human freedom. Part 1. Time and the Ego In the penultimate section of Phenomenology of Perception, Merleau-Ponty articulates the essential nature of time for consciousness. In this section, he looks at other theories of time, from Henri Bergson and Edmund Husserl, to explain how self-consciousness, self-awareness emerges. Merleau-Ponty's answer is that self-awareness emerges in a temporal way. On this, he deviates somewhat and radicalises Husserl's account of time. Husserl famously drew a distinction between primary memory and secondary memory. Secondary memory was representational, referring to how we retain the distant past or how the distant past is represented. Primary memory was immediate and referred to how we perceive, retain and anticipate the immediate past, present and future. This is what Husserl termed, rather catchily, the protensional retention order of internal time consciousness. The difference between primary memory and secondary memory is one of immediacy. Secondary memory retains the distant past. The protensional retentional order of internal time consciousness refers to the immediate flow of experience itself. Husserl likens the protensional retentional order of internal time consciousness to a comet, with the present moment illuminated while past impressions fade out and future impressions emerge. For Husserl, disentangling these two ideas is crucial. If we don't, we simply can't distinguish between the distant past and the immediate perception of past present and past future or we could not disentangle something which happened last year from what is happening right now. Merleau-Ponty accepts Husserl's account of primary memory. He does, though, hesitate about the serial nature of Husserl's temporal perception. Despite Husserl's best efforts, Merleau-Ponty thinks that his theory of time, Husserl's that is, still reduces our experience of time to a series of now pints or moments severed from past and future. Merleau-Ponty thinks there is generally an inherent confusion in the way we talk about time. 
We continually mix up both succession and simultaneity, our sameness and change. Instead, Merleau-Ponty argues that to have a perception of past and future, we need to think of a subject who lives presence as time. This will help us get past any potential confusions where we separate the flow of time into different moments. Merleau-Ponty is trying to articulate something deeper, I think. When he talks about time as a form of presence, he's not suggesting that time is reducible to the present, to the now. In contrast, he's talking about the essential form of time itself. Equally, when Merleau-Ponty talks about the notion of presence, he's not saying the present has a priority over past and future. We are, though, time. That is the key insight. Time is a horizon of intelligibility. When we make any claim about anything really concerning our embodied life, we are always presupposing time. We can see this point where Merleau-Ponty criticises Bergson. Merleau-Ponty thinks Bergson's account of time as duration is limited. Bergson sees time as a form of continuity, and thus ultimately explains time is extended, and therefore time is something intrinsically spatial. This is not really a theory of time for Merleau-Ponty because it denies time altogether. When we perceive, we do not really experience perceptions as extended or attached to memories which grasp things past. To recollect is not to proceed with a picture of consciousness picking out past moments and then attaching them to present experiences. That would be a bit silly, as it implies that any recollection of the past is a direct reliving of it, or a past time. To perceive is not to remember, but to be the temporal flow itself. Of course, what stabilised the flow of time for Merleau-Ponty is bodily presence itself. We've seen this already foreshadowed in his account of habit as the continual adaptation of past to present to future within an environment. This view of temporal embodiment has consequences for how we understand self-consciousness. The first thing we need to do is depart, as you might expect, from empirical, rational and transcendental accounts of subjectivity. So Merleau-Ponty does not really think of time as a thing. He is not really viewing time like Aristotle might as a, a byproduct of movement and motion. Nor does he think time is a byproduct of psychological contents, say like a memory. Rather, time is the form of perception itself. We can't really understand how a thinking subject can posit or become aware of itself in time if we presuppose a transcendental ego doing all the work prior to our perception. Equally, if we think of time as the flux of impressions, we cannot think about how one present impression connects to another. Once we have a subject as positing itself, then we fall into the contradiction of an ego prior to perception, abstracted as it were, organising temporal perception, or an ego passively experiencing the flux of impressions. Merleau-Ponty does propose a simple enough solution to this opposition. What we need to do is grasp how the subject is identified with temporality. Once we do this, then self-positing is no longer a contradiction because it expresses time as lived. What does this entail for self-consciousness, though? Well, it asks us to see subjectivity itself as inherently temporal. Time is the affecting of self by self, as Merleau-Ponty says. The living embodied presence is the movement of presence from past to present, passing towards the future. Here, there is no real separation between the subject as affected and affecting, precisely because, in Merleau-Ponty's terms, the thrust of time is transition, 
or the very act of transitioning itself. When the future, past and present are conjoined, we do not think, or we do not have to think, of a time subject or a time object. This problem is really a pseudo-problem stemming from our fidelity to dualism or the subject-object distinction. Where the future, past and present coexist, in the movement of time creation, then we no longer have to think of two abstract moments of time as experienced or time as subjectively inaugurated. Time is coextensive with our being towards the world. As Merleau-Ponty suggests, and I quote, the world as the cradle of meanings, the direction of all directions and ground of all thinking. How to leave behind the dilemma of reason and idealism, contingency and absolute reason, nonsense and sense. Time, therefore, is a presencing in the world, or of the world. The subject is ecstatic, which is to say, constitutively outside itself, always in the business of transcending itself. Merleau-Ponty's transcendence is an act of transcendence. The world is inseparable from the subject, and we temporally exist along with the world. Time, therefore, is the ultimate form of what we can and cannot experience. Hence embodiment itself is conceived with a dynamic unfolding of the world. Lived presence affirms the past which slips away and anticipates a future that is to come. Time exists insofar as I am situated in a bodily way in a world. But because I am situated in a world, therefore the totality of time is not available to me. The things of the world too are formed out of both the traces and sediments of their pre-existence as well as their survival. But of course for things of the world, time is not an issue. The world considers so must be, therefore, the ground of how I perceive it, equally constituted rather than constituting from a form of pre-existence and survival. This inherent ambiguity reveals a contingency of self-awareness. Self-consciousness itself is the activity of time, and as an activity is therefore unfinished. For Merleau-Ponty, and I quote, there can be time only if it is not completely deployed. It is the essence of time to be in the process of self-production, and not to be, never, that is, to be completely constituted. In a way, the time of self-consciousness begets time, because the distinguishing feature of our embodied temporality is self-production as it operates in the world. Time cannot be brought to completion as that presupposes the negation of time, or eternity. Part 2. Time as Self-Awareness There is one further implication which Merleau-Ponty identifies as crucial for our understanding of self-awareness. If we were to think of time as just a form of flow, then it would be something that carries on without our awareness of it. In some sense we might say that this is what happens anyway. As we go about our business in the everyday world, time is not necessarily something that our attention latches onto. But for Merleau-Ponty this would not be quite the right way of thinking about the matter. If the time is the horizon of any perceptual experience, then our everyday business also presupposes a temporal horizon, whether we are attentive to it or not. Merleau-Ponty goes further. Time is not just restricted to actual flow, but also it is inherently entwined with how we are aware of ourselves. In short, time is thinking itself. The form of time, what time is, is very important. If we think of the phenomenon of time as something thinkable, then at the very least it is defined by intrinsic incompletion. The present is never a present forever, since it is over once it arrives. 
and thus becomes the past, and the future is only the appearance of a goal towards which we move, which too is incomplete since it arrives. Put in a very basic way, this is what thinking is itself. Merleau-Ponty is quite explicit on this. He says that, and I quote, the explosion or dehiscence of the present towards the future is the archetype of the relationship of self to self, and it shows up in interiority or ipseity. Dehiscence means differentiation, separation. Ipseity means self-affection. Dehiscence's time shows that self-awareness is continually self-producing itself. Dehiscence just means separation or difference. So the form of self-consciousness is the activity of differentiating and demarcating, as opposed to, say, static psychological attributes. The body, because of its depth, because of its habitual nature, because of its intentional arcs, projects itself as past, present and future, navigating one situation to another, retaining and maintaining its activity itself over time. All conscious awareness is bodily awareness. The body anchors the self in relative terms, providing the temporal density to locate us in a world, as well as the flexibility to transcend our current location. And this is the complex type of self-awareness Meloponte is asking us to grasp. All self-awareness is temporally situated. Embodied awareness opens to enacting possibilities. In this context, freedom, therefore, is the backdrop to all bodily action. If we were to concentrate freedom just on choice and decision, then we would actually destroy the concept of freedom. Because freedom is only intelligible against the backdrop of an implicit situation of influence against which free acts can be made explicit. We are bodily and historically prior to being deliberative agents. Merleau-Ponty's emphasis on the anti-predicative body argues that we are pre-structured by skills, habits, dispositions. And to be pre-structured, though, is not to be caused, since those skills, habits and dispositions are actively responding and adapting to any environment we inhabit, always grasping for future possibilities. Consequently, my living presence opens on to a past which I am no longer and a future that I am not yet, nor may never live. The I, therefore, the ego, is inherently open, transcending its own coordinates in time and space because of its unfinished nature. This means that the ego can never close in on itself, and it also means other temporalities are possible, whether they can be found in the encounter with another, or the social world, or collective history. Therefore, it is only through time that we can have any account of self-awareness, significance, or reason. If this were not true, then subjectivity would just be a static monad, able only to perceive itself as a now. Thus time and significance are one thing for Merleau-Ponty, since anything we call present automatically implies a demarcation of past and future. What Merleau-Ponty calls presence, or lived presence, is our primordial experience of time. Merleau-Ponty sees time not as an eternal consciousness or an activity carried out by a self-positing ego, Rather, as Merleau-Ponty says, and I quote, I am not the creator of time. I am not the initiator of the process of temporalization. Therefore, we do not author time according to Merleau-Ponty. He goes on, but time flows through me, whatever I do. Time thus is the horizon of my self-awareness, is the essential condition of possibility. Embodied time is self-aware time. 
and I cannot make time, but I am the activity of temporalization itself. The self as an intentional embodied being in the world is thus dynamic, continually aiming towards and retaining itself in an act of movement. Hence, the time Merleau-Ponty is referring to throughout phenomenology of perception is the time of life itself. Time cannot be closed or determined, and thus Merleau-Ponty sees our understanding of ourselves as temporally embodied beings as the foundation of human freedom. Part 3. Temporal Freedom When it comes to the question of freedom, Merleau-Ponty deviates from the classic formulation of the problem, that is, the opposition between freedom and determinism. Here, if someone is determined, they cannot be free, or inversely, if someone is free or self-causing, they are not determined. Merleau-Ponty boldly dispenses with the question of causality for understanding freedom. Instead, he reformulates why freedom is essential for any understanding of the human being. But we are free not because we can transcend any preceding causal nexus, but because we are constituted as embodied temporal beings. Freedom is thinkable because, as we have seen, our body is fundamentally contingent. If it is contingent, it is therefore inherently open to being otherwise. Furthermore, if our embodied being is continually self-producing itself in an incomplete way, this implies we are actively indetermined. Freedom is therefore given to me prior to any conceptualization or deliberative act of decision. For Merleau-Ponty, freedom is given within a network of bodily intentionalities and situated within a given field of possibility. Because we are embodied, being towards the world, freedom is a mode of that very being, disposing us to the ever-present possibility of transcending ourselves. At the outset of the final chapter in Phenomenology of Perception, Merleau-Ponty claims that, and I quote, it is clear that no causal relationship is conceivable between the subject and his body, his world and his society. Merleau-Ponty does not think that there is no such thing as cause and effect. He only thinks that these are restricted to things. If I am determined, it is because I am a thing. But throughout phenomenology of perception, Merleau-Ponty has resolutely shown that we are not intelligible as things. The other alternative might be to see freedom as emerging from motivation, where I have a motive force to discard all the norms that I am. Freedom here is equated with voluntary deliberation, an act of will, where I choose the strongest path out of a range of possible alternatives. Neither of these two positions are satisfactory for Merleau-Ponty. On the one hand, we have a scientific concept of determinism, and on the other, we have an idealist assertion of absolute freedom divorced from the world itself. This shows us how freedom is connected to the question of time, or needs to be connected to the question of time for Merleau-Ponty. To think about freedom as synonymous with choice, decision and act of will, bespeaks a deficient understanding of why we are free. To say freedom is equivalent to an act is actually to say something about temporality. It is to say that freedom is only thinkable in terms of an isolated moment. The act is in the now. A choice is always carried out in the present. But this again does not tell us about how we operate in the world. A truly free act requires contingency, not determination. To say that an act is determined is to say ego consciousness does the determining, which would abstract us from the vicissitudes of our own worldly situation. Freedom, if it is to be at stake for us, implies a commitment to moving the present from a past to a future. That which is free requires a duration of sorts. 
it is an ongoing project or sets of projects which is always of issue for us. Freedom is something else entirely for Merleau-Ponty. Freedom is the backdrop of our environmental embodiment. We are certainly located in space, place and time, but that locating is, as we have seen, actively self-producing itself, self-maintaining itself until death. Because we are self-producing, Merleau-Ponty thinks we are always beginning, and beginning implies continual novelization. So, our embodied activity continually projects itself into an open world. If this were not the case, we would not really be able to act at all, as no separation would be possible from one place to the next. Here, Merleau-Ponty is talking about our embodiment as continually adapting to a given range of possibilities. Unless there are open situations requiring a possibility of achievement, of enactment and completion, or even a failure to achieve and accomplish, we never really experience freedom. That I am socially situated does not preclude my freedom. I suppose a way of getting to the heart of what he is saying is that I am relatively free. I am neither absolutely determined nor absolutely free. One could ask, though, if relative freedom is really truly free. One cannot really be free, one might think, only if one is free to an extent. This, though, is a bit of a pseudo-problem for Merleau-Ponty, since an act of temporal being that I am, my actions cannot be, from their inception, either wholly free or determined. My actions in a situation are not decisive. I cannot take up a choice which wholly severs me from the world I inhabit. Choice itself already is only intelligible in the context of a range of possible projects and commitments. My actions are certainly motivated by my concrete situation, but neither are they restricted to the situation. If this were the case, all I could be would be this particular situation or this particular norm, be that lecturer, husband, father, painter, CEO or revolutionary. Freedom is not something I do voluntarily. Nor is it something negated by my causal makeup. Instead, freedom is the leading of a free life as an embodied human being. So, when Merleau-Ponty is talking about freedom, he is not really making an explicit value judgment. He is not saying it is good to be free, necessarily. He is performing a phenomenology of perception, and he is therefore trying to make explicit the type of being we are, the form of the being we are, And the type of beings we are, are beings that are free, within the constraints of our situation. That is the freedom Merleau-Ponty thinks is significant. The condition of possibility of our corporeal being is unfinished, and thus we are always grasping and reaching across a span of time and place. Freedom does not eliminate our situation, as the voluntarist might suggest, nor does it mean we are not influenced by our situation. This is what Merleau-Ponty calls a rationalist dilemma, where either an event is caused by me or is imposed on me by external causes. Instead, one's freedom is the condition of possibility of being a body in the world. Our situations are inherently open, which implies that I am a being between action and possibility. Indeed, I am the being that virtually exists between acts and resolutions. As I find myself in my concrete embodied being, I can certainly make choices but a choice is not a supreme act of will, separate from its situations or the range of alternatives it faces. So, and I quote Merleau-Ponty here, 
in my absolute concreteness, as I am presented to myself in reflection, I find that I am an anonymous and pre-human flux, as yet unqualified, as, for instance, a working man or middle class. If I subsequently think of myself as a man among men, a bourgeois among bourgeois, this can be, it would seem, no more than a second-order view of myself. Thus, I cannot absolutely determine myself in any of these roles that Merleau-Ponty mentions. What I really am is a being that freely evaluates the operation of these roles in certain contexts. To say something like one's social class, one's economic conditions, or even one's sexuality is a result of a free choice would be to abandon our historicity. And equally to say what I am is determined by my economic class. That too misses something essential. One could say that one is a bourgeois, but one's social class is not voluntarily called into being. Instead, it is a description of common patterns of behaviour, shared circumstances, the cultural factors and affiliations we identify with, but which are equally contestable. These things form and influence us for sure, but not absolutely. A choice then is only meaningful against a context of concrete norms, where we can understand norms as the different commitments or roles we face up to in our lives. So Patrick has the norm of being a father, and Patrick has the norm of being a philosophy lecturer. Usually, these norms coincide for Patrick, sometimes though they might not. The prioritisation or choice of one norm over another tells us something about the contingency of embodied freedom. Norms do not just reveal something factual about me, something finished, as in I'm a thing called father and that is all I am, or that I choose freely to be a father and that is all I am. Norms and roles reveal that our commitments are defined by activity, by the activity of sustaining or failing to sustain themselves across the span of my life. To be a bourgeois, a lecturer, working class, is to identify a set of commitments which can be carried out or fail. Merleau-Ponty thus, I think, has quite a unique take on what freedom is. Freedom is subjectivity, or embodied subjectivity in general. Insofar as my subjectivity is always already disposed towards an open world, that is. Freedom presupposes beginning, a situation, a place, even a factual set of coordinates in relation to which a person cannot but decide on sets of priorities and commitments, either by endorsing or refusing them. Basically, decisions do not occur in a void, but require as a condition of possibility a certain context, what Merleau-Ponty would call a field of presence or even general social factors. This is why we cannot say Merleau-Ponty is endorsing a type of ethical individualism, because he is not really talking about your specific roles and interests, as interesting and all as they may very well be to you. In contrast, he is talking about the what-it-is-likeness of being a human in the world. This is why, and I quote, I must apprehend around my absolute individuality a kind of halo of generality or a kind of atmosphere of sociality. Hence, we are fundamentally ambiguous beings, at once anonymous, that is utterly general, and individual at the same time, so therefore utterly specific. And this is why being a human is first and foremost a paradoxical business in itself. My freedom is already indebted to a variety of contextual, social, economic, political and cultural factors which define the range of my possible actions. And here we find traces of a Kantian thought. Freedom is not caprice. Freedom occurs in the 
reciprocity of agent and situation. So when Merleau-Ponty talks about freedom, he is really trying to show that freedom is always of concern for human beings. The phenomenology of perception is about showing the forms of beings we are and the types of beings we are, is beings who are self-aware, temporal, embodied, and who cannot but lead a life, cannot but prioritise, identify and project ourselves across the span of our time between birth and death. The form of time, what time is, is very important here. If we think of the phenomenon of time as something thinkable, then at the very least it is defined by intrinsic incompletion. The present is never a present forever, since it is over once it arrives, and thus becomes the past, and the future is only the appearance of a goal towards which we move, which too is incomplete since it arrives. Thinking these thoughts at once is critical to understanding the nature of time. The primary phenomenon that enables my freedom is that I am continually given to myself as temporally embodied being. By given, Merleau-Ponty means I happen upon myself, or I find myself always already situated in a physical, material and social world. As a situation, this is not something which is obscure to me, nor is it something which suppresses me or restricts me like a thing of the world. I am alive, and thus because I am alive, I bear a different relation to the things of the world, and indeed other forms of life. For Merleau-Ponty, and I quote, It is a fate for me to be free, to be unable to reduce myself to anything that I experience, to maintain in relation to any factual situation a faculty of withdrawal. And this fate was sealed the moment my transcendental field was thrown open, when I was born as vision and knowledge, when I was thrown into the world. Freedom, then, places the human being in a somewhat contradictory position. I am inserted into the world as a general refusal of the norms which constitute me, as well as a continual but qualified acceptance of such norms. Freedom, then, is a continual reiteration of this ambiguous being, a reiteration of an activity of past, present and future which I cannot escape. I repeat in newer contexts my place between the roles I have inherited and the priorities I must take, as well as the things I must forsake. And I quote, What then is freedom? To be born is both to be born of the world and to be born into the world. The world is already constituted, but also never completely constituted. In the first case, we are acted upon. In the second, we are open to an infinite number of possibilities. But this analysis is still abstract. For we exist in both ways at once. There is Therefore, never determinism and never absolute choice. I am never a thing and never bare consciousness. In conclusion, what makes freedom possible is not, as has conventionally been assumed, the twins of a determining free will or a determining causality. Rather, freedom is only possible because of pre-situated embodied cognition, history, intersubjectivity, culture, art, in short, life itself. Instead of obviating freedom, these structures make freedom possible. When it comes to freedom, then, for Merleau-Ponty, it really is fundamentally ambiguous. And that is kind of ostensibly a paradox in itself. If you think about it, one can't really have an unclear or shaky fundament. But in another sense, we are that kind of being. What is essential, or what we are, is ambiguously free. Therefore, we are neither absolutely free nor absolutely determined. Freedom, hence, looks very different from Merleau-Ponty. Being bodies that are free means that we are located in a space, place, time, but also 
oriented towards a future. Freedom, then, is the freedom to succeed and fail. That is what we are. We are the beings for whom possibilities are always available and continually being actualized. Therefore, nothing determines me extrinsically because I am, from my inception, always already outside of myself. Conversely, freedom is not constrained to choosing, where I am the autonomous self-legislating being emancipated from all restrictions. Rather, we are free because our bodies dispose us towards a temporal horizon, which imposes upon us the question of possibility making us realise we exist in a world where choices, alternatives and possibilities, if not necessarily inaugurated by them, are always at stake, always imposing on us the question as to what we ought to do and what we ought not to do with our embodied life.